North Idaho is home to beautiful mountains and scenic lakes, small-town tranquility, civil freedom, and the faithful Lutheran parish of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, located in Hayden, Idaho, near Coeur d'Alene. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church is a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. If you like what you hear on Brief History, then you will love Blessed Sacrament where the Lord's Word is faithfully preached and Christ's body and blood are administered at every divine service. Whether you are visiting Idaho or considering moving to Idaho, wouldn't it be nice? Please join the saints of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church for the Mass and Augsburg Academy Bible Study. Directions, service times, and much more information about this confessional, liturgical parish may be found at blessedsacramentlutheranchurch.com. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, Historic Christian Orthodoxy, the Evangelical Lutheran Faith in the Beautiful Inland Northwest. At 7,123 feet, you can find mountains soaring above you and rivers running swiftly in the valley below you, natural beauty of every kind. But our God is richer in his gifts than this. At 7,123 feet in Pagosa Springs, Colorado, you can also find God's Word preached purely and His sacraments given out for your salvation at Our Savior Lutheran Church and School. Located off US 160, just west of downtown Pagosa, Our Savior offers your children a wonderful place to learn of Christ and His wisdom week in and week out and offers you the medicine of immortality Sunday in and Sunday out. Our Savior Lutheran School provides a Christ-focused classical education that enriches the child's soul with the best that has been thought and said to the glory of God. Whether you visit while vacationing or hunting in the beauty of the area, or whether you would like to join a group of faithful Lutheran Christians, Our Savior, Pagosa Springs, has what you're looking for. Divine service with Holy Communion is each Sunday at 9 a.m., and Bible class follows at 10.30. At more than a mile high, you will find Christ in all his glory in the midst of his people at Our Savior Lutheran Church and School, a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. Find out more at oslcpagosa.org. Are you wondering where my sermons went or where Saturday morning chill went? Well, sorry, it wasn't really clear about this in every avenue. I figured most of you would find me if you wanted to. But if you are looking for those things, they just diverged into new podcasts. So you'll have to search iTunes or Spotify for Saved. That'll get you the sermons of Pastor Fisk. And uh, Stop the White Noise with Jonathan and Meredith. That's the Saturday morning show. It is available in audio, again, in Spotify or iTunes. Stop the White Noise and Saved. You should check them out. Dr. Koontz, what is Bitcoin? Bitcoin is the invention of someone who may or may not be a someone, could be multiple someones named Satoshi, maybe allegedly, that enables people to use blockchain technology. So it's very obviously technology in this case to store value. This exists independent of other authentication certainly by authentication by a sovereign nation state and therefore has been either ridiculed as worth nothing because 
a lot of people have trouble thinking about the world without the Treaty of Westphalia and the Bretton Woods agreements after the Second World War, you know, big problem. We identify that in everybody, right? But that's what it comes down when to. When I you first meet about... at a party, I kind of ask, like, what's yeah, your position right. on this? Yeah, what's your stance <laughs> on Bretton Woods, huh? So, um, you know, that's that's a kind of general problem. Can't think about the world without a nation state. And then also it's a store of value that therefore is very, very fungible, more fungible in this way than you know, U.S. dollars, and therefore represents a challenge, if not a, you know, impending destructive threat to a world financial system built not on a gold standard or on crypto, but on the interrelationships of various, let's say, reserve currencies, with the single most important one, the reserve currency being the U.S. dollar, which is really a proxy for a set of relationships between nation states. Because Bitcoin exists outside of those things and is not guaranteed or authenticated by those things, technologically doesn't even need to be, it exists as a store of value independent of those things. I know you're planning on getting into crypto when we go further in, but I, I want to kind of seed that a little bit. Um, how, yeah. See what I did there? Uh, with uh, some of the concepts that would helpfully uh, yeah. explain why. I mean, I think a lot of people are going to be like, well, why would this even be valuable? Okay, so you just said that it's not the dollar and it's invented by somebody. But isn't it just a computer? And so why would I trust it more than the dollar and all this? And I think that the place to go then is so... Explain blockchain a little bit there. Blockchain is a way of ensuring that work has been done such that a, a contract can exist without this kind of you know, full faith and credit of the United States government authentication of its worth. So again, remember that when we're talking about money, we're talking about technology. So what blockchain technology can do, whether you're talking about the store of value in the case of cryptocurrencies, or it can do if you just, you know, are need to authenticate work or a contract or agreement, a covenant between any parties, you can ensure that this has been done and you can do it in this case anonymously. Therefore, the forms of identification that listeners to this show know are also of relatively recent invention are also not necessary for this store of value to be used. So, I mean, that's going to be different if you're just, you know, buying crypto on, I don't know, Coinbase and you had to identify yourself to sign up, but that's not necessarily how you have to access crypto. Blockchain technology is simply the computer science that underlies the provision of this way of exchanging value in the same sense that there is, I mean, <laughs> to say, well, it's just computers. I could say the same thing about printing presses. I could say the same thing about, you know, metal stamping machines. I could say the same thing about mining technology. Well, they're just lumps. <laughs> yeah, everything in your checking account is just on the computer now. Yeah, is, right. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it, you know, everything, all of this, because money is technology, it all involves technology. So saying Bitcoin is just computers is kind of like saying, you know, well, you know, your fancy new, you know, internal combustion engine is just, you know, oil and explosions, <laughs> you know, that's not like my old fashioned, reliable, trusty steam engine, you know, automobile, you know, horseless carriage. It's, it's the same 
silliness because you yourself are using something that is highly artificial, technologically produced, technologically sustained, and you're simply disdaining a different form of technology that has the same purpose. The steam-powered horseless carriage gets me somewhere, so does the internal combustion engine. The US dollar, no longer exchangeable for gold, thank you very much, that's an old technology, nobody cares about that. The US dollar gets me stuff, and so does Bitcoin. So the Luddite tends to use an ad hominem against cryptocurrency. <laughs> and part of this is because they don't understand what crypto in cryptocurrency stands for. And I think people think it means something like shadowy or something yeah. like that. Yeah, I think right? they do. Yeah. But, but what it means is cryptography, this is code breaking, right? This is uh, writing something in a high level of code. And what the blockchain uh, inventor figured out was how to make it so that the code only goes in one direction all the time. Right. And so in one sense, uh, it, there's two kind of images I'm going to use here to try to explain this. Um, but in one sense, if you can imagine that you have like an idea that you want to keep encased in amber, right? And the way that things get in amber in, in kind of a Oh, paleontology, that's the wrong word, but you know, it's over time, layers and layers of this sap or whatever will, will drop onto it and harden over it. And so what's happening in cryptocurrency transactions is that that is happening repeatedly around the original development of the blockchain. So every new transaction contains all former transactions ever, and it just builds and builds and builds so that whenever you have one example of that transaction, you have the entire blockchain represented as a code that you can't go backwards through. Or so think of it this way. Um, it's like when you drive out of the parking lot and they got those little spikes that let you go one way and not the other way, the code cannot be reversed. Unless there's some sort of supercomputing we've never, ever conceived of before this point. And from what I understand, even um, quantum computing is, is not capable of outpacing what cryptography and cryptocurrency as blockchain has been able to do. And then part of the thing that makes this work so well is that means that everyone's got a copy of the ledger by which we're keeping track of the value of the exchanges. And mm -hmm. so we talked about the Medici's in the last uh, last episode. And right. you know, they, they had one guy, uh, probably of Hebraic descent, uh, in a back room uh, with an open book. And, and that was the that was where it was all kept track of. And it, you had to be able to read that book or have someone who could read that book to have any knowledge of what's going on because the ledger is, is more valuable, actually, than the money in a lot of ways. But now right. what crypto has done, what blockchain has done, is it's decentralized the ledger. Okay, and if, if you can you know, wrap your head around that idea that we've decentralized the ledger by encasing it in like like amber of a sort and putting it into everybody's pocket as a bit of code, then you can see what an amazing technology this really is. It does require the Internet, at least for it to continue doing what it seems to be doing. But then again, centralized banking at this point probably requires the Internet as well. So they're both reliant. Both possible futures are reliant upon electricity continuing to stay on. Yes. If it continues to right. stay on, though, what you see again is a decentralized banking system going heads at a centralized banking system, which is kind of where we're going to be talking about the birth of that here uh, in a few moments. Yeah. 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 No, that's excellent. Because when you say, okay, well, they could just turn off the internet like they did in Kazakhstan recently, and suddenly you don't have access to crypto, you know, that, that also, that is related to, it is the same kind of problem, although the, the interconnections 
vary between central banks worldwide, much of it running through a bank in Switzerland called the Bank of International Settlements, uh, which does relate to Bretton Woods. So this is why I ask party guests where they stand on Bretton Woods. But all of that is related to always technologies. It's not as if greenbacks are natural and Bitcoin is unnatural or, you know, Spanish doubloons from the 17th century are obviously worth something. And, you know, Ethereum is obviously not worth something. All of that could be taken from you. All of that is produced by people. So the question is not so much, is it produced by people? Is it ever going to be worth anything? That really depends on people. Uh, The question is always, who is authenticating this? Where is this coming from? Or in the way that you stated it regarding accounting and banking, who holds the ledger? Because like we said at the end last week, this is the innovation. It's not the, it's not the technology of money per se. It's the way in which money circulates and especially the way in which money is lent. And the Medici's revolution that they achieve is the provision of money to many different debtors such that they're not so narrowly dependent. I mean, in, in investment terms, this is diversification just from an, an investment, a banking perspective rather than you know a retail investor perspective or a, a hedge fund perspective. And then also the thing that they're doing is they are keeping track of things much more narrowly than had been done beforehand. Okay, so they have revolutions in accounting, okay? And that sounds extremely boring. Everyone is bored with accountants until they need them. And then they become some of the most important people in the world, okay? I am old enough to remember when Arthur Anderson was like blamed for the downfall of the American stock market because of a bad accounting job or a crooked accounting job. So no one cares about this boring stuff or how international bank transfers are made or the US dominated, let's say, SWIFT system, which we see the Chinese and the Russians opposing and trying to provide their own systems for international financial transfers. Everyone thinks this is boring until you need it. And then you become very interested in how the internet can be turned off or how the bank knows what it is that you did with that money or whatever the case may be that you don't want to be the case. So it's a revolution in accounting. And because of that, a revolution in the ability to know where things are, how much is owed, how much may be lent that really changes the world. It makes it impossible to have two sets of books. It, it, yeah. I guess I guess I want to know what you mean by that because oh, so it, so like you know yeah. um, the books up front the books in the back uh, yeah you know Ben Bernanke says the dollar's worth this much and we're keeping track of it but we can't out of the Fed no matter what we want to do right and so we, we can't actually see the books and so the, the shift here is in um, democratizing that's not really the right word but um, libertarianizing the ability to see the actual story of the money. As opposed to just take our word for it, we live in Switzerland, you know, which is the, <laughs> uh, the previous system. Yeah, I mean, I think I think specific to cryptocurrency, it it makes visible in an anonymized fashion what is occurring. That power would be available to you in I don't know 1981 if you had the right connections, if you had the right kinds of information, right? 
not coincidentally, technologies that provide information generally accompany. And I mean, I, I think that the Romans and Greeks foresaw this in combining those two, the capacity for communication and the capacity for money lending and the provision of mercantile expertise to the god Hermes Mercury, because the flow of information will generally accompany and support the flow of money, right? So the reason that I'm going to have telegraphs or the reason that I'm going to build railroads or the reason that I'm going to actually need to use the internet for anything, because I can't just like chill out and talk to somebody on the phone or wait for the letter to arrive in the mail. The reason things are going to need to speed up is so that the flow of money can speed up. So if I have no need for money to speed up, or as we discussed, at least hypothetically, or in certain historical circumstances last week, if I don't really need money, (laughs) then everything is going to be slower. It speed is a certain index of, you know, discontentment, maybe in pursuit of profit, usually in pursuit of profit, but certainly of discontent generally. That's why I have to go fast because I need to get somewhere. I need something to get somewhere. So when you're talking about crypto, well, what crypto is doing, whether I have any sense of where these flows of Bitcoin are coming from or not coming from, or where the work is being done, where most of the mining is being done, whatever, what I do have is some sense of what is flowing, you know, how much is flowing when. That is a sense that if you are George Soros in the 1990s, you actually do have but you're, you're unusual. You're very unusual among all human beings alive at that time in having that sense, right? So what it's doing, I think maybe democratizing or popularizing are good verbs for what's happening here in a way, although other media of exchange are still necessary for most people's daily lives, but it is democratizing a kind of information about the technology of money that historically you know, if you want to dig into investors business daily or stay glued to your Bloomberg terminal, you might have some sense of. It's at least telling a story about money that provides a very, very, again, populist, that's good, uh, appeal when compared to the current reserve currencies story about itself. That is, that story has become so increasingly unbelievable that this story just sounds far more plausible. And, and so I, you know, I don't go in and look at the code. I've not, I've not done that, but I don't know. I, I've, I've got some, you know, and, and <laughs> yeah. I remember when I first fed some dollar bills into a machine in the mall in St. Louis. And I thought, man, there that goes, <laughs> never get it back. And, and to be fair, you know, if I wanted to use that crypto right now to purchase something, I would not know how to do that, right? And so it's not like it's a story that has an ease of entrance to it, but yeah. it has provided for those who are discontent with the current uh, global story of the dollar's reserve, um, it has provided something that's at least plausible and believable. And for that reason, right. it continues to gain traction, even to the level of you dropped a couple nation states last last uh, episode of you know Ecuador. It's it's their actual currency now. Now they got so bad as being a central bank. They're like, well, we'll just we'll hook onto Bitcoin, which is yeah. very forward thinking in in my mind. But yeah, and it's I mean it's happened before, right? So places that have gone on the dollar as their currency, no longer printing their own, but going on the dollar. But I mean, in the past, I mentioned before, you know, colonial America, your 
your your specie that is going to be used maybe in trading with Indians is going to involve an Indian you know valued currency wampum with the Iroquois Confederation or really anybody will accept Spanish dollars right that's that's where we get the term dollar that's why we don't have American pounds so <laughs> that that dollar is something that you know, is an admission that this is what's valuable, this is what's worthwhile, this is what we've agreed upon. Where and when that's changing, you you don't have to see that as as it is on its face, just an investment opportunity or a speculation opportunity, whatever, <laughs> however much daylight you want to put between the concepts of investment and speculation. That that varies depending on the investment you know book you're reading. Uh, I've observed, although the activities don't seem to vary that much, but some people want to put big gaps between investment and speculation, whatever. It's also a way of recognizing how sovereignty is shifting because money is generally attached to sovereignty. And we understand that on a personal level when we have a lot of it, it enables power. But even if we don't have a lot of it, we understand that the, the person who is represented or the organization that is represented by that money only goes so far or only is you know worthwhile under certain circumstances and then that nation is gone or i crossed a border or whatever the case may be and because of a different sovereignty now there's a slightly different monetary technology that's necessary for getting through daily life so before we got to the creature from jekyll island we had the dutch figuring out that you could use money to ease commercial transactions. And yeah. Yeah. Because we, I mentioned at the very end last week, the, the enormous expansion in the money supply because of the traditional linkage of money in Europe to precious metals and the enormous expansion of what is actually unlike diamonds, relatively rare in the world, which is silver and gold, especially silver. There are other revolutions that make the modern world monetarily so unusual. There are three nations, each of which is going to primarily make its wealth from the sea from at various times in the 16th, 17th, and 18th centuries. It's control of the sea or parts of the sea that are going to be really important for how the modern world works. So if accounting and the basic techniques of money lending are invented in beginning in medieval Italy. And you mentioned men of Hebraic descent. This is, this is partly Jews. Jews function as moneylenders. There's a really a historical just piece of stupidity that says, oh, well, they, they had to lend money to Gentiles because you know, they weren't allowed to own land. That's, that's not even always true. And their role as moneylenders exists, whether they have lots of liberty in a given place or whether they don't. They never become in Europe like an agricultural people or something. And maybe, maybe I'm going to sound sound real ignorant here, but I would think it had a lot more to do with their understanding of themselves as a separate people, which is, a, weird, is what we're saying we ever should try to do. It's not like we're accusing yeah. them of something bad yeah. there. Right? Yeah, right. Their, their role as, as money lenders obviously can create enormous amounts of malice. It's, it's why there are European cultures where Jews were not only more numerically prevalent, but also therefore had much more of a role in people's daily lives, especially as moneylenders. You know, so there, there aren't really English language proverbs about Jews. 
there are Russian proverbs about Jews. There are Polish proverbs about Jews. This is going to depend on their presence as a money lending entity within a society, which is a niche they're going to occupy even in modernity when they could economically and legally do literally anything else. The great exception to that as a people and part of its distinctiveness historically is the nation state of Israel, where as a result of early Zionist thinking about what destroys a people, they say, we have to have Jews who work the land. We have to have Jews who can staff a military. We cannot exist this way as a people and be honorable because they understand that this is not simply a niche that they occupy when they're forced to. It's a niche that they occupy as a distinct people group within especially European history consciously, right? Even after they don't have to. But the Medici themselves are Italian Catholics. And so there are shenanigans here in the Middle Ages that are going to pass out of existence by the 16th and 17th centuries. And I say say them as shenanigans because they're a lot like what is now called Islamic finance, right? So Christians are not allowed to charge interest on loans to other Christians. Therefore, you have to do all kinds of kind of, you know, (laughs) moving this pile over here for this amount of time or into this purpose. And then you're going to bring it back with a little like, I don't know, profit or something. And and it's all very well-intentioned, but it's a way to get around the direct charging of interest to other Christians. That's how banks are going to make money, right? So banking is obviously therefore going to be limited because interest is such an obvious and simple way to make money. And these kind of maneuvers, accounting maneuvers that are going to be necessary in order to stay on the right side of the law, especially in the Medici's role as the major lender to the papacy as an institution. They're kind of the Vatican Bank before the Vatican Bank. All of that is going to limit how much banks can do, how much, therefore, as we talked about last time, financialization can occur, right? So if I have all of that and I have some guy that doesn't make a lot of money in a year because he owns, I don't know, a shop, you know, and he's selling whatever in that shop, you know, he doesn't need to bank because he can keep track of what he has and he has money. He has some money. He has some inventory and he's just going to trade in life with that. He doesn't need a bank right? He's going to need a bank if he wants to get bigger. So on a consumer level, I have to convince the average man that he needs to get bigger or that everything needs to get bigger. Banking is going to change because especially small commercial nations, nations dependent on the sea and therefore dependent on exchange need to get bigger and want bigger purposes for more things. And they're going to need to do that by creating more money, right? So this is about the, the, the provision of abundance in ways that not even medieval Europe came up with. The first of which is, as you referenced, the Dutch who live at this kind of nexus where all the different provinces in the Dutch Republic have different currencies. This is similar to a problem that you have in America in the times when we've had what's called free banking, meaning banks, states, state banks, a national bank who knows, print currencies. And, and you can find these. These are objects of uh, great you know, collector's interest. The Dutch create a commercial paper market that gives you a single currency in which everything will be denominated. So you can have your provincial bank and provincial currency, but when you come to this central market, right, you're going to be able to, it, we're all going to be able to basically talk to each other 
right? Think of this, this way of making commercial transactions possible as providing a single language, right? Mercury is also the god of language. That's why Paul is thought by the Lyconians to be Mercury or Hermes because he, he speaks so much. <laughs> and Barnabas, who's really kind of, you know, second fiddle, he doesn't talk. So he gets to be Zeus because he's in charge. Zeus doesn't talk. He's a warrior, but he doesn't talk. So this common currency is going to make a common, you know, as it were, a language in which to make commercial transactions possible. So if money is a solution to I have hammers and you have cups and I don't exactly want that many cups and you don't want that many hammers, then a single, you know, trading currency, you know, dare I say central bank currency, although it's not yet a bank currency, but a centralized currency is going to make transactions possible if we're all working in different currencies. If I'm really smart, and this is where George Soros made his money, for example, I'm going to realize that this guy from this province doesn't understand really how much or how little his currency is worth. And in the gap between his currency and the central currency, there's going to be a profit that's going to be made. And so with this provision of commercial transaction, I also get my first vaguely modern market in foreign exchange trading. That's no longer headquartered in the Netherlands. That's largely a city of London thing, but it's the same as it were technology. I'm going to so money breeds not only transactions, value, whatever, it also breeds these markets that are dependent on its existence in the same way that you know a casino is dependent on the existence of, say, the NFL to have something to bet on. Now, a casino is so, a really great example here, though, in yeah. the sense of like you go to a casino and you don't really bet dollars, you bet chips, right? Mm -hmm. and, and those chips are functioning as a commercial exchange enhancer within a controlled system. But if you took those chips out and went and tried to buy something at Walmart with it, it wouldn't work. And so right. you do have this sort of way in which the casino is trying to be like a free bank uh, and it kind of a throwback kind of thing. And can you imagine then if every store you went to really wanted some different form of exchange, how yeah, difficult that right. would be. And so, yeah, this right. helps This helps with abundance. I can see that. That's really obvious. And that's where seeing this as a technology that is not in itself evil is kind of important to draw forward from the last episode. Right, right, right. The problem you're going to have is if you are that bank, um, you are that central exchange, and someone says, you know, your centralized currency is great, but, you know, I want something that I can take out of the Netherlands and exchange and say France or Spain or England. So give me gold in exchange for my money. Mm -hmm. And this is where banks are going to be limited in what they can do as long as they have to exchange you something else besides the authenticated currency, whatever that is in exchange. So, so ultimately the, the chips in the casino are really denominated in dollars or, yeah. you know, yuan or whatever it is that, you know, wherever the, the casino, because the casino is not sovereign. And so this bank has this problem of sovereignty and it also has to hold, this is called, you know, capital reserves or capital in, in, in legal terminology, regulatory terminology, capital requirements, which have increased for most Western banks a lot since the 2007-2008 financial crisis, which we'll get to probably next week. Those reserve requirements used to be, at least theoretically, 100%. <laughs> so in order for me to stay in business as a bank, I have to be able to hold enough gold and silver to exchange you the value of whatever it is that you're turning into me for gold and silver. 
the innovation here is going to come about with what is now called and if and I know and you know one of them is is a, you know a co-host of the show former Ron Paul enthusiast <laughs> um, fractional fractional reserve banking blame this on the Swedes and I don't just say this because of you know by marriage Norwegian ethnic animosity that I may harbor towards Swedes blame this on the Swedes they have a bank called the Visselbank that is called this is a new idea called a loan bank. So if you can imagine, there's a time before which banks are making loans of what they hold. Okay. So now you give them a dollar, they will loan out, I don't know, depending on capital requirements, 75 cents of that dollar or 90 cents of that dollar or 98 cents of that dollar, whatever it is. Okay. Depending on how risky all of this is. That enables them to circulate money and to create money, to put money into circulation, which then does other things, and then has other people using money that no one actually, if you think about it, it's, kind of, it's like Schrodinger's money. Is it in the bank? Is it not in the bank? Depends on who's looking and when they're looking and who's measuring. As long right? as there's no run, we're okay. Yes. As long as there is no bank run, all of this works. If someone needs to call in any of those loans anywhere along, that's going to create a run, however far down, you know, anything downstream from where the run is occurring. If the run occurs on a bank that is what would be called by a financial regulator systemically important, or we said this with certain companies back in 2007 and eight, too big, big to, to fail. fail. Meaning yeah. if this fails, a lot of other things fail and we just can't, like we can't live with that. This is a this is a concept that really originates inside financial regulation because if there's a run, then I don't. I mean, everything will fall down. All of the enterprises dependent on those loans and the interest charged on those loans, all of it, the banks, everything is going to fall. Okay, so banking here is absolutely essential to modern economic activity and absolutely essential to banking that undergirds modern economic activity is the provision of loans on things that used to be before this happened used to be thought of as <laughs> liabilities because these are things this is money that is not really mine and i i owe it to someone if he comes to the bank window and says please give me my money back well i can turn it into an asset if i can make it something owed to me so you know, okay, uh, Mr. Smith, you can have your 10 cents today, but I need to wait for Mr. Jones to give me your 90 cents back. Okay. With profit for me, because I charge Jones, whatever. So he could do whatever with his business selling widgets. So all of that makes possible enormous expansion. This is really how money is made. And it's why when you think about money supply, how much money is floating around, there are different measures of these things because it's not just how much was minted and not called out of circulation by the treasury department. Okay. It's way more than that. It's whatever is estimated to be privately held. It's whatever is loaned out. Those are all different M's, M0, M1, M2. And those different measures are all telling you different, you know, relative sizes of how much this innovation in creating money, uh, we call it credit, but we also call it money when it goes into your bank account, even though it's a loan, 
how much this has changed life because now you can see how I can financialize lots of things. I can appeal to, and this is where mammon and money are always intertwined, even, even if we can't, we can distinguish them, but they, they get intertwined a lot. You never thought that you needed your business to have more than one location. You were kind of fine with having this shop in this place and your kids can take it over and whatever, you know? So, I mean, think about it. <laughs> think, think about how growth and the expectation of growth, we use all these biological words to describe economic things. I mean, that that's a very telling thing philosophically and even religiously that we use biological terms, natural terms to describe things that are technological, growth, change, decay, rise, none of these things. I mean, we don't, I mean, I don't say like my, you know, my bulldozer growth, <laughs> it either is or it isn't, and I'm using it or I'm not, but it's not growing. The growth that we're talking about is enabled by fractional reserve banking, which gives this almost organic way of being to money that it did not have before. So being able to turn your debt into an asset as credit, that, that, that is, there's some genius there. Um, <laughs> it, it calls subprime mortgages to mind a little bit here, but maybe yeah. in a different direction though. I mean, you can say something about that if you like, but for the sake, at least the, well, um, it, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. Well, I, I want to, because there's a, there's a phrase that is used usually when a financial technology, whether exchange-traded funds, credit default swaps, these are all things that have come about within most listeners' lifetimes as financial instruments. Futures options, not actually that new, but you know, ETFs make trading on those things easier to do than ever. And when something is new as a financial instrument, and I'm I'm thinking of banking as a financial instrument here, along with, you know, collateralizing debt and then trading debt, you know, so somebody in you know China or Saudi Arabia owns the debt on a bundle of you know homes in Arizona. People will say, oh, that's financial alchemy <laughs> or magic or something. And it's not just that, again, mercury has so much to do with alchemy historically, but also that it's all alchemy. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, saying, hey, you thought that this was a liability for me, that actually, if Mr. Smith shows up to the window, I owe him this entire dollar. You thought that was a liability. Guess what? It's not. <laughs> okay, that's pretty, I mean, you know, there's a level on which I guess I respect the, you know, for lack of a better word, chutzpah of that. but. There's also the reality that, that that isn't really that different. It's just easier to understand or far more normalized for us than how a credit default swap works or how you know currencies are traded or something like that. It's just that it's easier to understand, right? Because we deal with it more often. We understand that that's how banks work because banks have been around for so long, right? Relative to us. So when you're thinking about finance, you're, you're always thinking about something that's going to, if you drill down far enough, or if you look at it long enough, it's going to look alchemical because it's going to take some, something that was substantially a debt and <laughs> it goes through the Alembic and then it comes out on the other end and the banker pours out and he says, look at this, this is an asset. Okay. That is the alchemy right? That is the brilliance of the thing. 
Um, and there's a level on which I respect it for it's well, brilliant. It, it worked up till 2008. The only problem was the story changed, right? Or people stopped having trust in the story of the value of these various assets. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, think, I think that that is true for normal people. I don't, I, you know, I don't, as, as you all know, I don't reckon myself a normal person that could be a burden in some circumstances, but this is, this is sort of like a lot of the rhetoric around race in the United States or our position in the world as a military power. These are things that if you go back to the 1990s, you can see someone like Sam Francis talking about race in America, or you can see what were then called the paleo conservatives among which Francis would be one, but he was not, not as engaged in discussion of foreign policy. And you can find somebody knowing that this is all alchemy, that I know it seems natural, it seems biological, it seems obvious, but it's really not. Similarly, if you read enough about finance or the history of money, or you'll find that very often economists will be, if they, if they are at the top of their game, they will not just have a sense of how certain financial instruments work, or they won't just be able to say, okay, this is why property values are what they are in Hong Kong or Vancouver, but this is why they're so different in Akron. They won't just be able to explain that. They'll also, they'll also have a sense of when Akron was hot and Vancouver was worth nothing and why that was historically. So that the knowledge of history always gives you a very different sense of what is natural and unnatural because it makes things that seem normal very strange, but also not so strange that you haven't maybe seen it before. So speculation on real estate is a particularly Anglo-Saxon addiction. Common law nations, because of our history and how you know property law is adjudicated, are particularly good places to invest in real estate. So, you know, you could have figured out if you knew about some of these things having occurred in places like the UK in the 19th century, the US earlier in the 20th century, Australia, you could have seen this isn't going to work because here's where it failed in certain ways before, okay, um, the provision of agricultural credit to farmers who really couldn't make a living in certain parts of the American Great Plains and said, okay, we have basically given up, you know, let's say it's like, you know, March, 2006, we've basically given up vetting these people. <laughs> and if they, especially if they belong to, you know, this variety of legally protected classes in the United States, they have government credit available to them for all kinds of things. So away we go. And certain people are going to be savvy enough and or lucky enough, let's be honest, to understand that that's not going to last forever and to plan accordingly. Most people are not because of a bias that is constantly discussed in investment literature, which is people's absurd optimism. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> and, and that applies to things that feel natural or, or like it's always been this way. So we talked about this with boomers, but everyone is a boomer <laughs> in that sense. Like everyone thinks if it's going good, it's going to keep going good. And very few people can both live with things going good and plan for when things are going to go bad. You're back in the casino and, and you actually have a big win there, right? And so the tendency is 
keep it rolling. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Very few people can actually be professional gamblers because it, it, I think professionally gambling requires a certain indifference to money <laughs> and to any specific instance of winning. Now, obviously, you have to like it. You have to like winning. You have to like getting more money. But you have to be indifferent to the fact that for the past three months, you haven't been winning. And you're going to change your strategy. You're going to change maybe this tactic, that tactic in order to go back to winning, right? Because you've observed that the rules have changed or what you're provided with has changed or whatever. But you have to be nimble and indifferent. If you are kind of slow to change and you really care about the fact that you just lost like two days ago in a big way, then you're not going to make it because you think that somehow you're owed these things. And when you're playing, you have to just accept no one cares. <laughs> and that, that kind of indifference, that understanding nobody cares will breed in you, will actually be really productive for thinking clearly. Yeah, yeah. And, and out of that, the idea of being optimistic when things are going down because that's the time to buy because everyone yep. else is selling because <laughs> yeah. they're all afraid. Right. And, and, yeah, right, uh, right, right. which is, it's counterintuitive be, unless you see a big enough picture to be able to see how the trends tend to play out. Yada, yada, yada. Anyway, I, I do not give it financial advice, but what I do know is that we've moved from free banking to loan banking. And now we're going to move into central banking. Yes, sir. Because the world's oldest central bank is the bank of England proverbially something that is, you know, astoundingly daring and destructive would be breaking the Bank of England. Because the Bank of England is proverbially reliable, sound, trustworthy, such that its currency is still valued more highly, although certainly not held nearly as widely as the American dollar. The Bank of England comes into existence in the late 17th century, very late 17th century, um, 1694, if I remember correctly, to fund Britain's wars. So it comes in as a means of provision of abundance, but not here, abundance of commercial transaction or abundance of credit creation, but abundance of handling, taking alchemically war debts and making them available as government bonds in order to make the government's wars valuable. So this is remarkable because part of the enormous tension between the crown and parliament earlier in that century in England is, and, and perennially in any monarchy, is because the king has a lot of sovereignty, that is a lot of responsibility, okay? but often a shortage of funds for any variety of reasons. And so he needs provision of funds. The way to provide funds is generally to raise taxes or to expand markets or to expand resources. Expanding markets and resources usually involves war or exploration or both. And all of that requires money. So where do I get that? And then I'm in hock to money lenders. It would be better if I could just make money myself <laughs> and as it were, turn my liabilities into my assets. So let me take what I owe and bundle those things and then make those investments that investors will make in my government as such. So I will make my government a going concern and not my private concern. 
right? So when you think about things as like national, backed by the full faith and credit of the U.S. government, what, who is the U.S. government? When you're talking about a modern nation state, especially with a central bank, it is both its central bank, which because it's a bank, it should be audited. But we obviously, if we understand its connection to sovereignty, know why it's not being audited. Yeah. yeah. But it's the central bank and its investors. Now, that is not a tension that generally you see because the relationship, when things are going well, will therefore be cozy, right? So the relationship between you know the House of Rothschild and the British government has been cozy as long as it's existed. When things go well, when, quote, growth in these technological means of abundance it are, is available, then uh, we don't have a problem. Therefore, the bonds are low risk, low yield, but low risk. This is why the bond market is so important, because it has to do with the evaluation of nation states and corporations. And as far as power goes in the modern world, that's what there is. So that's, that's one reason to follow the bond market, even if you're not an investor in it. When there's tension between a nation, its central bank, maybe between those between the government and the central bank, but also between the government, the central bank, and its investors, as classically and several times, as we, we mentioned at least in the episode on Argentina, then you will often find that the lack of credit flow, the lack of investment, the sense that the, the bonds are high yield because they're so risky, maybe not even worthwhile, will scare off investment and therefore cut off the flow. So what happens here is that investors take the place of, for instance, let's say in English history, noblemen. So prior to this, noblemen have to say, we believe in what the king is doing, or parliament says, we believe in what the king is doing, or no, we don't. We will not vote him a raise in taxes or whatever. Now, investors have a power that parliament vastly beyond, because I could always create more credit, vastly beyond what is available to parliament or to uh, noblemen or any other class you may choose. So as a nation becomes financialized, and especially as governments become financialized through the provisions of central banking, investors, financial entrepreneurs, bankers, whatever you want to call a class of people providing credit, they are going to be the people with vastly greater power than hereditary, certainly, but even other otherwise traditional classes of power groups that are based on the land, maybe based on military service, farther back than that feudal service. Investors are going to come to be the power brokers of the modern world because they make it possible for nation states to be what they are. So we talked about sovereignty and its connection to the centralizing effect of currency already. Yeah. Do, you want to, do you want to hit that again or do you want to go past that now? Well, I think there is something that I think I referred to as, as masking going on here because you know, you hold up, you know, this coin and it says whatever it says, um, you know, a government of Canada, or it says, you know, uh, Elizabeth Regina, or it says, you know, um, United States of America. But when you look behind that, if you think in terms of, um, and we'll, we'll cover our federal reserve probably as a, just for the sake of the, you know, the majority, the vast majority of the listeners being Americans, that'll get its own episode, uh, next time. 
precisely because you want to know the history of that so that you can understand also what is behind it. Because when I look at the coin, so if I look at a coin in the ancient world and it's got somebody's head on it, okay, he actually, he actually is the guy in, you know, seventh century Lydia or second century Rome. He actually is the guy (laughs) that ensures that people are allowed to move the metals in and out of wherever they're dug and then smelted and then coined. Okay. That's actually the guy that ensures that this is worth something. With modern governments, because of central banking, which historically for a long time was tied to precious metals, but I think honestly, that was a residue of a different time. And it became just openly what is then called specifically fiat currencies pretty much everywhere in the 20th century, certainly by the end of the 20th century. But I think it was always, I mean, obviously I said, you know, I think everything is in some sense fiat currency. It is what we decide it is. But the reason that 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 coin signifies less and less all the time is not just because they're permitting inflation. It's also because you have to realize that the person on that coin or the symbols on that coin do not represent BlackRock in the case of the United States do not represent the house of Rothschild in the case of 19th century Britain, do not represent the people who actually hold the levers of power over the government that ostensibly authenticates the worth of that coin. So there is something masked about modern currency and therefore modern sovereignty where they're supposed to line up. So if I conquer a territory, my face goes on the coin, right? But they don't line up because the territory has, you know, changed hands, as it were, over time, the American, you know, government has become, and the American economy have become vastly more financialized. We, we carry way more consumer debt than our grandparents did. So we're much more tied in. And like I mentioned with a U.S. central bank digital currency, I, they're trying to tie even more people even more tightly to the Federal Reserve. That's not, that's not even quite the power. The power are the people who can invest. Argentina was not impoverished because one day, like the cattle stopped being cattle and producing beef. Argentina was impoverished over the course of the 20th century by virtue of finance. So this is where having these things held or being invested in things that are held by people who probably don't care about you, certainly don't know you, maybe almost assuredly in some cases hate you is a bad idea because that means that they have power over you that you really can't do anything about except to opt into some other economy of life other than the one that they increasingly dominate. So that's, I guess, what I was thinking about when you were talking about the bond market and the low risk, low yield reality being based upon the expectation that nations stay while companies come and go. And what seems... I don't know, speculative at our time mm-hmm. is that that, mm-hmm. that might not be something that's always true, uh, that we could enter into a time of conflict and tension wherein the investment in the bond uh, ceases to be a value because the nation itself cannot convince anyone that it, it has that kind of authority anymore. And that's what happens when a nation falls, right? Um, uh, the, the question is, I guess, um, 
how close are we to such a market? And then who are, what is the currency? What is the, the, the means for outlasting a shift in, in such a story? And that, that gets back to the crypto thing too, right? So the whole reason crypto is doing what it's doing is because trust in the dollar, trust in the story of the Fed, trust in the sovereignty of the nation is decreasing. Um, and whether we like it or not, that's, that's a major harbinger of the kind of space we inhabit. Okay. I mean, one, one way that you can see not directly connected to currency flows, how sovereignty is functioning is the increasing desire of ostensibly American corporations to not participate in American public life, except in lobbying form. Okay. So they don't want to be taxed in America. So they're going to globalize in order to evade taxes, which is obviously in their self-interest. So they're not going to pay taxes in the United States, or they're going to seem in somewhat crass financial terms to just be (laughs) accounting schemes, um, which is sometimes how you might think about Amazon. The avoidance of taxation is an avoidance also of that person's asserted sovereignty or that agency's asserted sovereignty over you, right? Taxation is like pictures on currency. And I think somewhat more tangibly, an index of sovereignty. So if you submit to taxation, you're saying, yeah, you know, you can take this, right? Submission to taxation is actually the, that is the practical application point, not, you know, resistance to mask mandates. The practical application point in Romans 13 is submission to both a head tax and, and a land tax, um, which are the two things that Paul denominates there. So the avoidance by say an apple by any means possible of potential taxation in the United States to the degree that they can is an index of their disinterest in the exercise of American sovereignty. Right. Right. They, right. Right. They are, they are existing as much as they can apart from that sovereignty. And I guess that's what I was getting at. So, so the low risk yield yield bond market is based on the assumption that nations stay, but companies come and go. But that was then, and this is now, and it seems that we're moving into a world in which companies stay and nations come and go, although we're not there yet. We're definitely not there yet. Yeah. Well, I mean, there, there is a, I mean, there's a corporate bond market. There's, there's a municipal bond market. All of these things are, even if you don't invest, okay, the reason to read financial news, the reason to educate yourself about finance, I'm not talking about personal finance. I'm talking about the finance that, that makes the modern you know, world system go round is simply because it's generally more indicative of what might, may happen, could happen, is happening than coverage of you know, how a bill is faring and what, and what Joe Manchin, you know, Joe Manchin blows up you know, libs by saying, you know, I mean, like on some level, who cares, right? Because those people are hired by other people to represent certain interests. And some of that is useful, but a lot of it's not. I would rather understand whether a corporation is actually, you know, still issuing dividends, which was used to be uh, one of the hallmarks of publicly traded corporations, but they love to do stock buybacks right now. Well, why are they doing that? Right. Why are they not issuing enormous dividends when they could? Why are they holding enormous cash reserves? All of those things are stores in that specific case. And I'm just thinking of Apple as I'm saying that generically. Those are those are indices of preparation for an uncertain future rather than full-throated participation 
in a presently extant system. Yeah. So a system in which the American government ensures that all of this stuff functions the way it should. And, you know, giving dividends to investors is good and, and helpful and expected. And you're responsive to the markets in that way. None of that is true. At, we're all doing risk management on some level in every facet of life. When you see people doing new forms of risk management, that's when you should pay attention. So we're paying attention. We, I mean, we have to, because if I look at, for instance, you know, how many cryptocurrencies are there? Oh, there's, you can't count them. There's new one every day and they're not all created equal just for the record, you know, just because no, just not... you and I are talking about Bitcoin doesn't mean we're all for like booby do do babala coin or whatever that just came out, you know? <laughs> right. And I mean, you know, you can call like Dogecoin, like, you know, it's a, it's a meme coin or there's a, you know, less polite terminology for these things. But I mean... It's all it's all just a meme until it's not, you know. I mean, the United States was was a meme until it wasn't, and then it was its own sovereign nation. So what you what you're always dealing with in human groups it, are exercises of trust, and those exercises of trust may or may not be connected to nation states. Finance is not all you could say about this, right? If I wanted to know precisely what Apple is getting up to. I would also ask about what security services it use and uses and, and where it gets those guys and what kind of property it holds. And, uh, you know, why does the Mormon church own America's largest ranch in the state of Florida? You know, these, the, there are other things to know about besides finance. The reason to pay attention to finance and the functioning of money generally is simply because of its enormous importance in the modern world. Right. I, I don't even like any of this, honestly. Like I don't, I, if, if somebody said, please set up a world, I would not make money nearly as important as it is to us. That's just the way it is. Yeah, but, but so, you would make trust yeah. important, right? And so that's where, again, money had come to replace trust for yeah, a lot of people. Right. And yeah. now it is failing to do that as, as a false god will eventually do, right? Yeah. Um, so now we have to learn how to exercise trust in other ways. And by looking at the ways that these various groups are trying to manage their risk, you are right. able to see where the things that are going to endure still exist. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And as a proxy for trust, I do, I do want to mention this week, the concept that I've mentioned offhandedly before, both this week and last, of a central bank digital currency. So this is not a cryptocurrency linked to the fortunes of a central bank currency, such as the US dollar, that would be a stable coin. Okay. Those already exist. A central bank digital currency is a, you know, functions technologically like a cryptocurrency, but is refereed, we might say, by a central bank issued by a central bank in a way that is not responsive to users in a, in a technological sense, um, but is responsive to the whims of that central bank, just like a, a paper or a metallic currency. The, the things that are possible if you do that are potentially endless. <laughs> and one reason that I'm sure some of the listeners are aware of, one reason that Sweden did not take the same approach to COVID that many other nations did is because Sweden is already farther along in than, than many places, not as far as China, but farther along than most Western countries in a switch from identity documents being analog to identity being digitally fungible. 
So if they wanted to know who you are, and if COVID had any other purpose than just the stopping of the most horrible epidemic that's ever come in the entire world, et cetera, et cetera, if there were any other useful purpose for a government, then Sweden had already attained those purposes. They already so, had all their their lists of names. And yeah, they don't. They don't. They where. don't. They don't need to get you into some kind of system that will enable you, in especially a historically extremely high trust, very low crime nation such as Sweden. They don't need assistance to get you into a way that is yoked to the system, a way of being, a way of living, traveling, moving, paying for things. A central bank digital currency would vastly help that, right? So I personally have not looked into what I see in the rare occasions when I go buy something to the national coin shortage, whatever that is, yeah, okay? Right, right. right. Uh, whatever that is, okay? A central bank telling me they can't provide more of something, it has literally never happened uh, on purpose. So a national coin shortage... If I go in there and now I have to pay in a way that's already through plastic uh, linked to my identity, um, linked to my bank account, whatever, then, you know, that's fine. It's just not as efficient and can't really be linked to other tools, such as my carbon footprint, such as in a Chinese sense, my social credit score that cannot be linked yet nearly so efficiently as a combination form of digital identity and wallet could be, which is what a digital currency issued by a central bank could achieve. It could link together disparately documented forms of identity along with disparate ways of figuring out if I'm allowed to do certain things, right? So already if my credit score, which I can get an app on and check for free, already if my credit score is at a certain rate, like I, I, can't, I can't really own a house feasibly right? Can't do it, right? I'm going to have to come up with some kind of disability or something, especially as a white male, in order to find some other means of getting into a house that I sort of own um, if my credit score is too low. So what a centralized form of identity slash transactional wherewithal would do is to bring all of that together and make it centrally controllable, Okay. And so this would go way beyond, you know, your picture on your driver's license, which didn't used to be the case. This would go way beyond a driver's license, which didn't used to be the case. This is not only do they know who you are, but they also have a lot of control over your being who you are because they have control over whether you're allowed to do something. So basically, um, if you want to think about it in an analogous way, um, this is like everybody functionally going on food stamps. Yeah. The government will assess your wherewithal and it will assess your capacity to spend. So it's like communism. Yeah, right. You know, and a centrally issued currency is always is already an enormous exercise in sovereignty that people argued, and we'll go into this next week, back before it existed, would be disastrous for American life. Simply to have a central bank. No one in 1913 is envisioning there's going to be like a little, you know, wireless telegraph in your pocket that you're going to carry everywhere. And that's going to tell everyone who you are and what you're allowed to do. A combination of digitally authenticated identity and purchasing power would be enormously helpful because it's basically a ration book for life. But instead of just doing it during wartime, as many Western countries did without ostensibly being communist countries, 
you have a ration book forever. Okay. And it's connected to whether you are, you know, lifting black voices as Amazon commands me to do or, or whatever is the du jour required social obeisance. Yeah. Worshiping their gods. At yeah. A certain yeah. Point. Whoever that is right now. Yeah. And so this is why as Christians, it matters to us to see this coming and to be prepared for being outsiders. Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I don't, I don't, <laughs> I don't see us getting on the inside of this stuff. And even, you know, maybe liberal Protestants or, or a lot of Roman Catholics that could go along with many of these things are, you know, functionally, they're pretty useless, certainly on strictly religious terms to the regime. And when, when we say that we care about something as Christians, I think that also needs to include destruction of life in the ways that are natural to life. So for instance, if it destroys the relationship between father and son, that, that money is getting in the way of that, then the first thing that I'm going to do before, you know, selling my relative to the highest bidder is I'm going to ensure that money cannot come between us. So this kind of horrible scenario that is discussed in terms of slavery, families being separated from each other. And, you know, biblically, you're supposed to reunite them when the period of slavery has ended in Israel. That, that horrible scenario is what it is because some deficit has created a, a slave condition that makes natural life impossible, at least for a, a period of time until I, you know, until I do something about my debt. We're looking at in the provision of digital currency and the assessment by agencies utterly hostile to so much of what we value. We're looking at the provision of life on the basis of a conformity that to which we cannot conform because the conformity that we're commanded to have is conformity to Christ, right? Taking every, I mean, if, if we're going to do slavery as Christians, we're taking every thought captive in obedience to Christ. That's, that's the slavery we do, right? We, we enslave everything to Christ. This will not be enslaved to Christ, guaranteed. Okay. And so whether you want to say it is literally the mark of the beast, okay, you, you can say that or not, it has the same effect. You cannot buy or sell without these things. Life will be impossible without these things. You may feel bad that your son didn't get vaccinated, okay? But that's his problem because that's his credit score and that's on his phone. And you can still have more money because you have a better credit score. So what it is going to do is it will continue to alienate, right? Debt is a form, not just of slavery on the part of the debtor, but also of alienation. It's, it's almost like a, it's like a financial form of leprosy and it alienates the one who has little from the one who has not much, but at least more. And that also can break up family relationships that should not be determined by money, but will be if we move into a social credit system. I think this is where the, the listener can see our previous talk about Romans 13 and its application to the current zeitgeist uh, really coming home now, right? Because it's not just about, um, will I change my dress of clothing because, you know, whatever regime happens to be king right now decides we mm -hmm. all going to wear, you know, tassels or whatever. Um, it is about, uh, will I recognize this one who says he's Caesar as also being Lord, 
right? Uh, is he able to change things that do not change? Um, is he able to uh, declare that he has no clothes on and I have to say, you know, I got to lie? Is he able to make me lie? Is really what this comes down to. And I think for many of us, at least for myself, um, with the masks, just as an example, yeah, that's what I couldn't do was lie about it. I couldn't say, yep, this, I'll do this because it's good, because it was so clear from the science that it's not. And so um, it's not about obeying Caesar, not obeying Caesar at all. It's about, do I have any integrity as an individual? Do I have yeah. any integrity before God? And the Christian, well, we are not saved by our integrity. We're saved into it. <laughs> and, yeah. and and woe to us if we sacrifice it on the altar of mammon. Yeah. Right. Yeah, but I mean, Mammon is, you know, he is the most common competitor to God. And that is why his enticements are so important to understand, not just to know what has happened historically, but also what faces us. And what faces us is, in the case of social credit, a financialization, not only of the provision of housing, the provision of food, which could honestly, if we figure it out, be provided by us to each other, okay, with some amount of sacrifice, okay, but could be provided to each other. Those are already financialized things. Now we will also financialize what you think, where you go, where you're allowed to go. And that is historically called either somewhat more politely, usually in European history, uh, after antiquity serfdom, as if it is somehow all that distinct from what it is usually called in a non-European context or in antiquity, slavery. And I want people to avoid slavery. <laughs> I don't want to be a slave and I don't want my children to be slaves. And this is also why I think this, this uh, show and so many other things that are happening like it everywhere are important because we're not just talking about living continuing to, to exist as biological entities. Because there are examples of people groups doing that and, and surviving merely, right? So like Christian Egyptians, the Copts have survived. They have survived as slaves, right? They are a slave class functionally in their own country. We don't want that. We want to exercise sovereignty, Right. Whether we're doing that through, as we talked about, you know, more narrowly for today, cryptocurrency or anything else, we want to exercise sovereignty so that we don't have to live as slaves, whether in our own country or somewhere else. And slavery is precisely what a central bank digital currency, a social credit system would effectively accomplish in a way that, you know, a Russian, you know, lord of the manor could only dream of. You're listening to A Brief History of Power. You know where to find us, or we wouldn't be here. The 8th Annual Men's Gathering is happening at Lakeview Villages in Seymour, Indiana, the weekend after Easter, April 21st through the 24th. Join other Christian men for a relaxing weekend of fellowship, feasting, and fun of every kind. Men will learn how to resist tyranny and how to have a good conscience as fathers, men of the church, and citizens from our main speaker, Dr. Kuntz. He'll guide everyone there through scripture and church history as we seek to live as free men. Check out our website at www.mensgathering.us for more information and to register. You can also search Men's Gathering on Facebook for updates leading up to the event. It is going to be a wonderful weekend for men to relax in God's beautiful creation. The timely topic will be an encouragement and provide much-needed strength as we go to battle against the powers of this world. 
We hope you'll join us for the 2022 Men's Gathering, a proud supporter of A Brief History of Power.